ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's nice, isn't it? To be nice. Hello, Paul Banker. Hello. Pitfalls for the, the budding, the emerging, the hopeful gardener. <laughs> and there's many. Well, for people thinking about a garden, maybe teasing the one they have in a new place, starting again. I mean, if you don't do this all the time, and yeah. you do this all the time, if, if, if you don't do this all the time, uh, so many problems can, can crop up and you can, you can take four steps. And I think, so I think let's start with the very basic, the soil. I think right. in Australia, a lot of people don't consider the soil enough. And a lot, of, a lot of professionals don't consider the soil enough. A lot of contractors don't consider it enough. And a lot of novices don't, definitely don't consider it enough. And the soil is the most important part of the garden. It's going to determine what works. It, exactly. If you've got the soil right, you're, you're 90% of the, of the way there. But even getting it right or wrong, knowing what it is... Yes, and, and knowing what might work in that environment, and that's right. Just understanding what your soil is like is is probably one of the first things you should really be doing. And you do that by just digging a hole. It's quite simple. Like just dig a <laughs> hole and, and see see what you're dealing with. Like, are you in a sand belt somewhere? Um, do you have clay? If you have clay, how far down is it? Or, um, you know, do you have loam? Do you have really lovely, rich mountain soil? It's really important to understand what your soil is. And, mm. and probably do a few tests. I mean, depending how big your garden is. But, like, you know, do, dig a few holes and just see what's going on underneath. And, and, as you say, go down a bit. Because, I mean, something like clay, for instance, that'll only probably become obvious once you're down through the topsoil. Well, and, and if you ignore that, if we, if mm. we ignore the soil... And, and the next topic we're going to talk about is drainage, mm. then, you know, if you don't dig that hole, you don't know how far the clay is down. The clay obviously holds water, and that'll lead, lead to drainage issues. Okay, so whatever the soil is, is not going to be a deal-breaker. It's No, no. You can... you, I mean, the thing is that, uh, you know, if you have sandy soil, you're stuck with sandy soil. There's not much you can mm-hmm. do about it. You can add lots of compost, and it's a good thing to add compost, but that will just keep going straight through the sand it's so porous it'll just keep leaching out so then it's just a matter of selecting the right plants that will grow in sand that's other, that one other sorts of soil though you can be adjust a bit more yes you can you can you can you can adjust like if you have clay you usually have a very thin layer of topsoil maybe you don't but you can add compost to that you can build it up you know build up you know getting like four or five hundred deep of soil for your garden beds on top of clay is probably the, the right thing to do or even even if you've got bad soil, like you know, just just getting that four or five hundred of friable compost, you know, rich humus is probably the best thing you can do for your for your, for your garden beds. And yeah, as you say too, that's that's a good whatever you have. Yeah, adding Except compost for sand. apart from sand, where you're sort of wasting your <laughs> you're almost wasting, <laughs> wasting your, your effort, almost wasting your time. It's the soil, and and, and, and and the other thing with soil that and this is always another common problem yeah. always make your garden beds higher than your lawns or your terraces because you don't want all that water from the lawn or the terraces washing into your garden beds you want it to go the other way really really important and 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 also allow for that soil to settle like you put it on and allow it will come down a few centimeters as it settles so make sure it's a bit higher than what you think it should be okay now if if you have that clay Yes. Thing. And it's close to the surface. Yep. Two things you can do. Build up the soil level so you're rising out of that wet clay layer and add some drainage into it. So what do you dig mean some that? trenches, get the poly the, the um, drainage pipe, 
put some gravel in that and then fill that with gravel again and drain that into... Such a serious structural adjustment. No, it is, it is, it is. I mean, you can grow, you could select plants that like boggy conditions. Mm -hmm. Very limited plant selection. Well, this is the funny thing, isn't it, with plants? I mean, people worry about dryness and so on, but so many plants just hate having wet feet. And that's what we found. It was really interesting. I mean, we had the big millennial drought in Victoria, you know, mm. in the 2000s, and we've gone through periods of drought, and people who create gardens in that time completely forget about drainage because it doesn't rain. And then the rain comes, yes. and plants that are well, quite well established, like six, seven-year-old plants, just die because they get wet feet. Wet feet is the greatest enemy of plants, hmm. as is humans. And, and you don't kind of immediately... That, that, that's just the reverse of sort of unschooled thinking here. Yeah. You think, oh, I've got to keep put pouring water into this. Well, that's right. And, and as Australians, I think that's right. We yeah. think that we're, we've just got to keep adding water. The biggest thing for us is to add water. We think plants die faster from drought, but they actually die faster from wet feet. If you're, if you're lucky, though, and you have a, a, a nice combination soil yes. that's, that's loamy and friable, I, I mean, is, is your problem potentially there? I mean, this would be the case with a sandy soil, that the water is running through, yeah. that the drainage is too, too, too good. good. And it's almost too good here at Stonefields as well. So we have to, when we put our trees in, um, uh, we put in big trees. I was silly, I was impatient. I put in some big trees. I learned my lesson really fast to put in smaller trees because they do better. But we put some bigger trees in and we would just add water. We just could literally see it just going straight through. So we had to do it more regularly. Right. So there's nothing you can do to make a soil... Well, in, in, our, in our mountain soils, you can add compost. That will help that. But in sandy right. soils, yep. like you add the compost and it's gone quite rapidly. So a soil that will hold that compost, the compost is going to... It will hold the water. It will hold some yeah. of the water for okay. you. And you can get the water granules as well. There's, there's the products you can get that actually hold water. It's like a granule you can sprinkle around and it will hold some hmm. of the water for you. Okay, they're too. They're 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 pretty foundational issues, aren't they? And they're not very exciting issues, are they? No. Like you know, you see that you got you got to do a lot of work to the soil, you got to do a little lot of work to the drainage, and you get no results. But you will in the long term. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I think that's the thing. If you if you set that that foundational work in place, your garden will has got a very good chance yes. of flourishing. All right, what do we think of next? Aspect, right? And I think a lot of people don't consider aspect. I mean. Uh, if you're sitting designing a garden on a plan, it's even harder to think of aspect because mm. you're sitting there in, a, in some office or some inside your house and you're not thinking about where the sun is going to go. So you really need to know about what's going to be in full sun and what's going to be in shade, what's going to be a partial shade, what's going to get morning sun, what's going to get afternoon sun. Well, and, and just knowing what happens today is not going to be much help with you on that because what's going to happen in autumn or what's going to happen... Yeah. In winter. Yeah, exactly. What's going to happen in summer? That's right. It changes. And the other thing you have to think about, and this is very hard to plan for, is if you're planting a garden from scratch, you can put a garden in that's in full sun, but when your trees grow, mm. it then transitions into shade. Not easy, a yeah. transitioning garden. Yeah, well, I, but it also speaks to that. I think what's probably a really good rule of thumb, too, is not rushing. Yes. Yeah. If, if you're in a new place... You don't know the seasons. You don't know things like you know how aspect plays through the year. There's nothing wrong with sitting with it. 
No. For that 12 months to see what happens. Just, yeah, it's often good to go through. I mean, I always say to, you know, it's always good to plant in winter. It's always good to plant in early spring. It's always good to plant late autumn, not through summer, not through um, early autumn. So, you know, it doesn't hurt to actually create your beds. You could put your lawn and terraces in and leave your beds alone. You could leave them alone for a little while while you see how much sun they're actually going to get. Or, you know, if, you, if you've created them in summer, wait till the right time of the year to plant them. Well, it's... And it's I mean, a garden is is creating an element in space, isn't it? It's it's creating something which is part of this broader whole. Yeah. So if you don't understand where you are, if you don't understand how that 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 part of the world works, it's very difficult, and it's very mm. it's very it's, it's, and it's very hard to stand hard to understand for for amateurs, and you know just you know you you just don't want to take a a hydrangea, for instance, and put it on the north side of the house because it's just going to fry. But if you put a tree in front of it, then it'll be okay. So it's sort of considering what's also going to happen in time. Hmm. All right, we've got we've got soil, we've got drainage, we've got aspect. I think if we can do all those do things, all those. We're, we're 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 off to a good start, Jonathan. Yeah. I, well, I think the only thing I'd I'd suggest adding in that is 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 be patient. Yeah, patience is a great thing, isn't it? And I and and like we said before, I think gardeners have great patience and fail. And and that's. Exactly the definition of gardening, not not laying out a garden. Gardening, I think, is all about experimentation and failing. Mm. And if you fail, don't panic. Just go, you know, pull it out and put something new in. Great advice, Paul. Thank you. Pleasure. I, follow those. Follow the golden rules <laughs> from Paul Bangay and all be well in your patch. Crisis often needs a, a big idea, something clever enough to cut through awkward complexities. Let's let's look at the housing crisis. And the word crisis makes it sound like some sudden apparition. The reality is complex and possibly a thing that has slowly evolved. Housing, well, the problems with housing, well, they feel like a perennial problem and, and maybe a feature rather than a bug. Uh, there are many intersecting issues at play. There's shortages in housing supply, labour, materials, NIMBYs, tax breaks for real estate investors, an inflated property market, a nation still wedded to the idea of home ownership and the the single house and, and the investment in housing. And that's, that's the thing that perhaps underpins it all, that notion of the home as, as a commodity. Maybe what we need is the aforementioned big idea. <laughs> so what's, what's to be done? Uh, Professor Philip Goad is Chair of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, uh, Co-Director of the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage. And he kindly joins us now to, to help us think this through. Philip, welcome. Thank you. Uh, to begin, that, 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 that sketch of the issues, I mean, your sense of this, this current crisis, what, what's involved in it and what, what are its origins? The, the origins are complex. Clearly, there's a global difficulty in supplying materials. And Australia, as its population has grown, has always needed extra labour. And it's almost as if COVID was an unfortunate, if you like, stopping moment for industry proceeding as usual. And what it's meant is that we have a labour shortage, we have material shortages, and 
also to the an extraordinary escalation of land value. So affordability of housing is now at a, one would argue a, a crisis point. That's the thing, of course, all, all of which has a bit of a long arc. I mean, you mentioned COVID. Yes. I mean, our sense is that this is the thing which has been exacerbated by that period, but it's there's a lot of pre, pre-existing conditions that have led to this point. Yes. And uh, look, one, one of the aspects is the extraordinary sprawl of our cities and the fact that land release is still happening, but it means that the galloping sprawl of our cities isn't actually... Uh, keeping up with the need for uh, transport infrastructure, community infrastructure like schools and childcare centres and the like as well. And all of a sudden, I think Australia is realising that many people want to be able to walk to work or walk their kids to school. And the physical geography of our cities is now making that very difficult to achieve. There have been echoes of this before, though, in Australia's history. Because, of course, your interest is, of course, architectural history. Um, mm. I, I wonder, can you describe for us the parallels between our, our current situation and, and that of the post-war period? Yes, the, the, I think there's an uncanny uh, resemblance between what's happening now and what happened immediately after World War II, where, because of the war, there was an extraordinary housing shortage, but there were material shortages and labour shortages, plus... Government was intent in upgrading its pretty terrible infrastructure after World War II. So water, power, um, the generation of electricity became extremely important. And the need to actually populate many regional areas of Australia. So one of the solutions, and it was a solution that government had to find rather than the private sector, government, government decided, look, Uh, we have to produce housing at great numbers. And it instituted a whole series of prefabrication house schemes, some of them developed by from timber pre-cut houses in timber factories in Australia, but an extraordinary also importation of thousands of houses from uh, Great Britain, Austria, Italy, uh, Sweden as well. Because, we, as you say, we were a, a place undergoing transformative growth and change. That's right. And and just on our own terms, unable to keep up with that demand. So that I mean, and, and that feels that feels resonant. It it does. And the the other I think difference is that you also had state based housing commissions also responsible for providing affordable housing. Um, for uh, low, lower-income Australians. And it, too, had to grapple with the fact of housing supply. And some commissions, like in South Australia, but particularly here in Victoria, uh, it developed uh, its own factory to produce prefabricated timber, but also uh, prefabricated concrete houses. And the the difference, though, is that the densities were based on a suburban vision of what housing might look like. Yes, yes, and that, yes. So, and so in the seeds of our future future problems. <laughs> that's right. And so so now, what I think we have is we don't have those state housing commissions. So private developers are being encouraged to provide 
percentages of affordable housing in their inner city and middle ring suburbs where they're building medium density housing. But it might be that they're not providing enough affordable housing. And, and given the way that this is framed as a crisis and given that, you know, the reality that we have thousands of people without roofs and without the prospect of, of securing the, the why we don't um, consider this, this issue of, of, of prefabrication is a strange thing. I mean, tell us. Tell us about Operation Snail. Well, Operation Snail was the brainchild of a controversial politician, uh, Colonel Kent Hughes, or, or Billy Kent Hughes, and he uh, devised this scheme for attracting about a 1,000 British migrants out to a, to a Victoria for the, to, to work on the Victorian railways. And it was called Operation Snail because the prefabricated house was a pre-cut timber house with Swedish timber cut in Nottingham. And then it, it was marketed as coming on the backs on the same ships as the migrants. So homes on their backs, hence snails have homes on their backs. And it was largely successful uh, and it provided housing for railway workers in Melbourne, in places like Albion and Sunshine, but also many, many houses for Eildon, for the State Rivers and Water Supply Commission, the new lake and uh, water supply at Eildon, and also the Kiwa Valley Hydroelectric Power Scheme, uh, housing for the township of Mount Beauty. And it it was successful. Um, there were housing housings also for Newborough in, the, in Gippsland, in the Latrobe Valley, for the, the new power stations down there too. But it was controversial in that local councils and also other people in the Victorian government didn't necessarily approve. Necessarily approved. And unions were also ambivalent about this as well because there was the threat of conventional building practices being lessened in importance. So the houses were, were small, modest, well-designed houses. And, you know, you know, in the space of about four years, about 5,000 houses were built. It's a lot. So, so that, that was a radical government-led solution. And there were many other prefabrication housing schemes. But at a certain point, by about 50, 1954, private industry took back up the reins, private sector of the building industry, and it was only the Housing Commission of Victoria and Victoria that, that persisted with the idea of prefabrication and then started to developing the high-rise precast panel towers, which have since been vilified but have proved themselves to be extraordinarily visionary in keeping affordable housing within the inner city ring of Melbourne. Yes, and, and, and in creating community and all sorts of other desirable aspects too to those those towers in the, in the modern setting. Exactly, exactly. Prefabrication in the 1940s was one thing. Uh, prefabrication now is potentially entirely another. The internet is full of, of, of captivating videos of 3D printed housing. Um, the you know, flat packing is is part of the way that we live. I, I would be very surprised if modern sciences of prefabrication couldn't do extraordinary things to to quickly supplement our housing stock. Well, it is happening in Australia, and it's happening in Queensland. So their public works department is doing exactly that. It has assisted funding a prefabricated housing scheme with other private manufacturers, and it's doing it. 
successfully and with the advocacy of the architecture profession in Queensland. So that there is a model out there. I don't think it's got enough traction or publicity to see showing how successful it can be. And it's for regional locations. It's different when you get into the cities, the idea of prefabrication. But for a, for a very large state like Queensland and the um, the need to provide housing for, dare I say it, the, the uh, industries of extraction, it's, it's a solution. Why is it different in the city? Well, I think the city, our cities do require different densities. They, 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 and one way of actually stopping Australian cities sprawling on indefinitely because transport infrastructure cannot keep up is that our middle and outer rings of suburbs will need a sophisticated medium-density housing stock and at the moment we don't have a prefabricated system of building in Australia at the very least that can deal with four to five storeys of prefabricated medium-density housing. I think Europe is, is better advanced. Countries like Japan are, are better advanced. But we need a, a building industry, uh, the unions and government to come together to find, I think, a, a clever solution. Yeah, as, as you say, there are, there are um, international examples that we could draw on. And I wonder, too, if, if one of the fundamental things that needs to happen here is a a more robust intervention by the state in these processes. I mean, that that's the distinguishing feature of what happened after the war. This was the the golden period of of government activity and intervention, which has been somewhat muted by the, the yes. period of neoliberalism subsequently. No, you're, you're spot on. And remarkably, Kent Hughes doing Operation Snail in Victoria, he was on the conservative side of politics, but he got the thumbs up from... Uh, federal labour to borrow the money and do it. And then government changed uh, with the Menzies era. And in some respects, it's a political history which we need to sort of open up to see, well, what were the lessons that, that could be taken from that period, what worked and what didn't to go forward, I think. And, and that basic idea of Operation Snail, of, of the new arrival bringing their accommodation with them, that cuts through the the, the, the catch twenty two that we're confronting in in housing in this country currently. That we need more workers to come to solve some of the issues around labour and, and and supply and so forth. But those new workers will in turn require housing themselves, only exacerbating the problem they're here to solve. Correct. Um, bringing the house with you would help. <laughs> It would. And I, I think we should think seriously about it, in particularly in terms of regional Australia, where you have country towns that have fabulous amenity, great schools, great community infrastructure, and can afford to grow. I think the, the, it's the larger cities. We, we need to actually think cleverly about regional Australia, where there are so many fantastic benefits uh, in terms of raising families and the like, and that that's where labour is desperately required. And why not think about either developing our own prefabricated uh, house factories here or importing some clever, environmentally responsible way of getting them here uh, with the labour, with the, the labour force bringing their houses with them. Do we need, you know, big-scale rethinking here? I mean, is is it possible uh, for a fundamentally 
market-based solution to, to grapple with this issue of our, our housing crisis or does it need serious... And we've seen things, you know, towards this in, in National Cabinet and signs of intent from our governments, but does it need a more serious um, state intervention? Uh, I think it does. It needs state intervention to actually be prepared to grapple with the private sector in terms of how to build things and also to how to actually manage the release of land so that when land is developed by the private sector, there is adequate land made available for affordable housing that the government can step in. And that requires legislation. You know, we can theorise about it, but it really requires, as you say, the state stepping in, making big decisions and in the long term so that young people can actually look forward to a more secure way of thinking about where they're going to live. And the spirit of Operation Snail needs to, to move in the land. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, that, of course, that was the irony, you know, Operation Snail, but it, but it actually moved very, very quickly. <laughs> On that note, Philip, <laughs> a lovely spot to wish to end. Thank you so much. And, and, and yes, a, a big crisis needs a big, big changes in thinking to, to, to move towards solutions. Yes, and look, I think the example in Queensland uh, needs to get more airtime, I think, because... Some states are trying to deal with it. There have been disasters, of course, in terms of thinking about prefabrication in Indigenous communities. Um, but as you say, you know, internationally, online and the like, there are scores of small house possibilities. And we just need to, I think, be content with less in terms of the houses that we expect for the future, in terms of less accommodation per family. Big things to swallow, but if we're to yes. clearly what we have currently is is not meeting our needs. Philip, thank you no. so much. Thank you for that. Sure, Professor Philip Goad, uh, Chair of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, uh, co-director of the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage. ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. 